There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Luke's English Podcast is sponsored by italki, a service that helps you to arrange lessons and conversations with English native speakers and qualified teachers online. You can choose your teacher, agree what kind of English lessons you'd like to have, and then fix lessons according to your schedule. And because you listen to this podcast, italki will give you a voucher worth 100 italki credits when you buy some lessons. Lots of my listeners are already on italki, improving their English all the time and having a great experience doing it. And you can start too. So if you're interested, just go to teacherluke.co.uk forward slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. Right, now let's start this new episode and here we go. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Rob Ager, who's probably best known for his film analysis videos on YouTube, in which he discusses classic Hollywood thrillers, science fiction and action movies in quite astonishing levels of detail, often focusing on deep psychological and political themes and hidden messages that most viewers probably wouldn't even notice. His videos are carefully constructed documentaries made for educational purposes, and all of them feature a voiceover commentary by Rob in which he analyzes the film and gives his observations. Um, I think that I first came across Rob's work on YouTube about five or six years ago. Um, sometimes I start watching YouTube videos and um, I sort of get sucked into a YouTube wormhole. Uh, that's where you start watching one video and that leads you to watch another one and then another one and eventually you find yourself watching something really fascinating and unexpected and that you wouldn't normally have come across. Um, and I've come across all sorts of weird and wonderful videos on YouTube in that way. And I think that's how I um, came across uh, Rob's videos initially. Um, initially. Initially. Um, I think I first came across a short documentary that he made about a horror movie called The Thing by John Carpenter. Um, which is one of my favourite films. It's really scary, tense and well-directed and it has a terrifying monster in it and really good special effects. Um, it also has a complicated storyline which creates an eerie sense of paranoia that invites the viewer to speculate on who is or who isn't a monster. It was really interesting for me to listen to Rob talking about the thing in so much detail and it made me think about the movie in ways that I hadn't considered before. Uh, then after that, I kept noticing other videos by Rob and I would always watch them with interest. And he has uh, videos about The Matrix, Star Wars, The Shining, Alien and many more. Um, sometimes I find his comments to be a little bit too specific. Like, for example, he's he might be perhaps overanalyzing the films. But then again, I think that this is what's great about movies, that there are... Uh, that that, um, you know, everyone can interpret them in any way that they want. 
and that a film might mean one thing to you, but might it might mean a completely different thing to someone else. Um, even the director, for example, of a film might have a very specific message in their movie, but most of us don't even notice or realise. Um, and I, I think that most modern filmmakers understand these ideas, and they often leave their movies open to interpretation. Think, for example, about the ending of Inception, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. What what does it really mean at the end you know we're supposed to imagine i think and discuss our own interpretations of what happens at the end of that film and i think it's one of the strengths of the film and one of the reasons why it's so popular everyone can leave that movie with their own theory on what it was about and what had happened at the end and uh, in his sort of film analysis rob ager takes this principle that there are multiple readings of a movie, and really runs with it in his documentaries, suggesting that many of these great films that we love could in fact be about all sorts of other things, like political events in the real world, our deep desires and psychological motivations, or even uh, they could be about hidden power structures that exist in the world. Um, Another interesting thing for me is that Rob comes from Liverpool. He's a scouser. Uh, a scouser. That's the word for people who come from Liverpool. And he speaks with a scouse accent or a Liverpool accent, uh, Liverpool accent, uh, which really reminds me of the people that I used to meet, talk to and work with when I lived in Liverpool years ago. Um, the Liverpool accent is really distinctive and I always want to feature different British accents on this podcast. So in this episode, you've got the chance to listen to um, a scouse accent or a Liverpool accent. Um Also, I think that Liverpool is a fascinating city and not enough people know about it around the world. Most people, of course, know the Beatles uh, or Liverpool and Everton football clubs, but there is more to Liverpool than that. And I'm hoping that Rob will tell me a few things about what it's really like to live and grow up in this important English city. Um, So, um, Rob has a website uh, which is called collativelearning.com. And I think I understand that collative learning is the the name that he's given to his sort of um, I guess his academic approach or his uh, his approach to his work. He, he combines all these different schools of thought, you know, aspects of psychology and sociology and philosophy and other things, film studies and so on, and he's brought them all together to create what I think he calls collative learning. So his website is called collativelearning.com, and. Um, This Just having a look at collativelearning.com reveals all sorts of interesting things, like, for example, the fact that Rob is a filmmaker himself, and he's uh, very prolific with his analysis videos. Um, He has loads of documentaries, which you can download from the website. And what becomes clear after reading and watching his work is that Rob is a very observant and articulate person with a great interest in film, but he's also knowledgeable about a wide range of academic theories, and he incorporates ideas from psychology, sociology, and philosophy in his film analysis. And all of that reminds me a lot of the things that I read and wrote about while I was doing my media and cultural studies degree at university in Liverpool. But what's notable about Rob um, is that he has received no formal academic educational training at all in all of these subjects, as far as I know. I mean, he's he's not university educated, for example. He's completely self-educated. Um, and, you know, all of this, all, all of the knowledge and um, the ideas that he's able to express all come from his own self-education, which I think is interesting. Um, I've never spoken to Rob before. Um, 
this is the first time I've I've spoken to him, and um, I'm recording this introduction now before our our interview, which is due to start in just a few minutes. Um, I've got no idea how the conversation will go or what directions our conversation um, will take. Uh, but I really hope that it's an insightful and engaging listening experience and that Rob and I get on with each other. Um, I suggest that you listen out for differences between my standard Southern British received pronunciation accent and Rob's accent from Liverpool. And also, let's see what kind of vocabulary emerges from our talk. All right. So um, it's almost time to speak to Rob. Um, and as I said, yeah, this is the first time I've ever spoken to him. We've exchanged a few emails. Um, I, I I asked him to be on the podcast, you know, for the reasons given. I think that it could be an interesting conversation. I love talking about films in detail, as you know. And also, I want to present um, different accents on the podcast. And so, I haven't really had... Uh, I haven't featured a, a Scouser or a, a Liverpool accent on this podcast before. I've had my friend Raf, who is from Liverpool, but his accent isn't that strong, really. Um, whereas uh, Rob's accent sounds exactly like the sorts of people... He sounds just like the people I used to uh, talk to all the time when I lived in Liverpool. So it's a real authentic uh, Scouse accent. No idea how we're going to get on. I don't know if we're going to hit it off or not. I don't know if this is going to be an easy conversation or if it's going to be a little bit awkward. No idea. Uh, but it's now time to speak to Rob. Um, so here we go. Actually, just before I play you the conversation, I should let you know that uh, I started the interview and Rob and I talked for about 10 minutes before I realised that I hadn't pressed record on my recording device. So I actually missed out the first 10 minutes of the conversation, which is very annoying. Um, so to bring you up to speed, what we talked about was um, Liverpool, basically. Um, and I asked Rob about what it was like living in Liverpool these days. And um, we talked a little bit about the types of people that you typically meet in Liverpool because the city is full of characters. People there are very funny and you get these interesting personalities. And we started sharing anecdotes about some of the people that we've met in Liverpool. And um, so we're going to join the conversation sort of mid-flow here. And you'll hear Rob talking about um, a situation where he met a guy or he, he came across a guy on a bus um, and he was sitting on the bus and this man came and sat next to him and started trying to sell him all of the items that he had in his pockets. So he says, you know, here, mate, do you want to buy this? Do you want to buy this, this razor? Do you want to buy these things? And he was trying to sell all of his, his, all the things he had in his pockets to Rob. And Rob wasn't interested in buying them. So apparently the guy then stood up and moved to the front of the bus and tried to sell all of the, his stuff to all the passengers in the bus. And apparently he had some success. He managed to sell all of his items uh, and then apparently the next day Rob was reading the newspaper and he found a story about this guy in the newspaper so it's just another uh, Liverpool story a typical story about uh, some of the uh, slightly eccentric and funny characters that you might meet in Liverpool so we're now going to join the conversation 10 minutes after I started um, and so you can now listen to it and here it is <laughs> He had all kinds of items in his coat. You could see he had something under there. And he sat next to me and he started saying to me, do you want to buy some razors? Do you want to buy this? Do you want to buy that? And he was pulling these items out of his pocket. Yeah. And I said, no, I haven't got any change on me or I would have bought some. And then he goes on, <laughs> he says, oh, fuck it. And he goes and stands at the front of the bus on the top deck with everybody watching him. And he pulls out all these items and starts selling them to people sat on the bus. <laughs> 
he sold everything within about two minutes. Then he got off. Oh and then the next day, I saw it in the newspaper. They were saying suspicious man selling items on bus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, yeah. I used to work at uh, HMV on Church Street. Right? Oh, yeah. I worked there for a year um, upstairs on the... Um, I worked on the computer games and specialist music counter. You probably saved me from time to time. I, you know, I probably did because I was there like all day, every day for about a year. Yeah, uh, I, back then I used to buy a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, I'm. I've no doubt that you saved me. There. I'm sure I did yeah. because uh, I was there, right there, with all the DVDs and stuff. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I used to just stand there all day, just like next customer, please. There you go, receipts in the bag. Thanks very much. Next customer, please. Like all day, and I, mm. you know, I just meet waves and waves and waves of locals um, mm. doing doing that job, and uh, I met some interesting characters there too. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's, it was pretty, pretty funny experience. Uh, yeah. I've just noticed that we, we've been talking for about fifteen minutes, and yeah. being being a stupid idiot, I've just forgotten to press record on my device. So I missed <laughs> about the I missed about the first ten minutes of our conversation there. Um, right, okay. I, I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe we'll need to just briefly to summarise what we just said, which was basically that you're in Liverpool, and uh, I mean. When I was living there, it was like ninety, you know, the late nineties. They hadn't sort of refurbished the city centre by that point. And mm-hmm. then, then after I left in in two thousand, apparently loads of work was done in the centre of town, uh, and it, it's been totally changed. I mean, I don't know what it's like now. Is is the city different now to how it was? Uh, vi- visually, in the city centre, it's very different. There's all kinds of new buildings. And in you know, in some ways, it's really good because we used to have a lot of old, uh, run-down, empty buildings that were just a really sore sight on the eye. Um, a lot of those have been removed and replaced with mm. these fancy new structures in, in the city centre, which is quite nice. Uh, and I do a fair bit of shopping at the, the new shops that have uh, opened up there. Mm. Um, but then you go out of the city centre, and there are still whole streets worth of empty, boarded-up houses. Um, because they're out of the way and they're not the type, they don't lie upon the path um, between uh, the city centre and Liverpool Airport mm. and uh, they are out of sight, nobody bothers to do much with those but the, there are so many empty houses that could be occupied here Yeah. yeah. So actually what, I'm, what I'd like to ask you is um, if we first of all can establish what the rest of the world seems to know about Liverpool and then what the reputation is uh, of Liverpool in the UK and then yep. perhaps just what it's really like to live in it on a daily basis and to have grown up there. Um, yeah. So um, the rest of the world seems to sort of uh, know just a few things about Liverpool, which are probably like the Beatles, the football clubs, and also the fact that it used to be um, a, you know, uh, an important port back in the days of the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what, about the, what about the UK? What does... What are some of the stereotypes that the rest of the country seems to have about Liverpool? Uh, well, the the thing you get a lot of jokes on TV about is that uh, we're all thieves, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you get the uh, what what is known as the scally element uh, mm-hmm. here in Liverpool, uh, which is the the people from the roughest parts of the cities. And then I wouldn't necessarily say that they're thieves any more than any other people from rough areas are from around the country. Yeah. Um, but they just get that reputation for some reason. And it probably also stems from the fact that the city has been economically down for decades. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's assumed that because a city is poor, that means everyone's going to be 
uh, stealing, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there, there are. I mean, I used to work in the homeless hostels here, and I used to meet some of the roughest people from around the city. I mean, I'm, I'm talking like people who were homeless because yeah. of their antisocial behaviour. Right. Um, you could you could give them an apartment somewhere and get them set up, and they would ruin it within weeks with their antisocial behaviour. Uh, that's not all homeless people, of course, but a lot of them I, who I met were like that. And some of those people were really manipulative. Um, I mean, I'd see them on the streets helping old ladies across the road in order to persuade people to, you know, oh, we'll give them some change, and they'd be really friendly. Mm-hmm. And then I'd see them bullying and mugging each other in, in, the, in the street around the corner 10 minutes later. You know, wow. I've seen a lot of that kind of thing. Wow. Um, a classic one I saw... Uh, was there was a guy who used to beg in town, yeah, and in the middle of summer he'd be standing uh, shivering as if he was freezing, right, uh, with torn clothes, and if you looked at his feet, he had these old shoes where the the ends were so frayed that you could see his dirty, filthy toes, yeah, through, uh, sticking out of the shoes. And I used to feel really sorry for him. I used to think I was probably mentally ill. Mm. And somebody said to me one day, "This guy's full of it." And he went over and started having, having a go at the the, uh, the homeless guy and mm. saying, you're a liar, and you know, swearing at him a lot as well. Yeah. And um, the, guy, <laughs> the guy who was doing a swearing, he said to me, look at his feet. And I had a close look. And what he had on was um, these, like, plastic false uh, shoes that, like, from a joke shop or <laughs> costume shop, and they were actually plastic toes. What? Really? <laughs> they were plastic toes. And even oh though God. the guy kept up the act, even though somebody was fronting him about it. Um, and I was, I was absolutely in awe of this guy. I was like, you know, amazing that you had the guts to pull off a stunt like that, you know. Yeah. That, that's how, as I was saying to you before, there's the... There's sort of a hidden intelligence in a lot of people in Liverpool, a streetwise intelligence of mm. that nature. Yeah. Um, but they're not, they're not articulate people for the most part. Mm. But yet they're able to come up with these quite intelligent plans, <laughs> ways of manipulating. It's, it's a really fascinating side of the city, you know. That's, that's hilarious that the guy was actually wearing like false plastic toes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny it's pretty funny i have to say um uh scousers are famous for for their sense of humor and I, i've heard that uh, for stand-up comedians uh, liverpool is one of the sort of the most difficult places to perform because usually the, the audience are just well, the hecklers as, are going to be funnier yeah the hecklers <laughs> are, are often funnier than the comedian and like yeah. you know every member of the audience is as as funny if not funnier than the comedian on the stage so it's a very difficult place to perform in yeah it's often the case yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and uh so yeah i met many uh scousers in liverpool some interesting characters um like for example the guy who i did mention it to, to you before uh, before I uh, thought it would be a good idea to press the record button on, yeah. on my device. But I did mention that, yeah, I, I met this guy once. I was walking across the park to go home after university one day, and he came up to me, and he was like the friendliest guy 
in the world, you know. It's yeah. like he came bounding over to me. It's like, yeah, mate, you were students. <laughs> you were student, mate. And I, actually, I got that quite a few times when I was living there, you know. <laughs> like, I think some of the locals, they could spot the students and they would have their sort of like, uh, you know, their, their their way of talking to the students. And so, well, I mean, I, 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 I know right off there that, you know, you... You're telling the truth because the impression that you did and the precise choice of words is exactly what you would get. Yeah. Right? Where are you students? Are you? Where do you? Where do you live? That was the second. <laughs> that was the next question. It's like, yeah, oh, I mean, they'll ask you any personal question about yourself as well. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's like an openness of information. You know, throughout. I mean, Britain itself is sort of renowned throughout the world for being a very reserved place where people don't say what they're thinking or. Mm don't express the true feelings. And yeah, that is certainly true of a lot of the, the country. Yeah. And when, when I've moved out of the city before, or even just gone to visit another part of the country for a few days, uh, usually when I go down south, mm. uh, oh, it's so boring, <laughs> yeah, the, the interactions. I mean, you know, you meet intelligent people. Yeah. You miss the honesty um, and you miss the openness and the belly laughs that come out of honesty. Right. Uh, because people everywhere up and down the city have crazy thoughts. We just don't hide them as much in Liverpool. Right. Why do you think that is? I mean, what makes Liverpool different? Because I I do think it's different. I mean, living there, I used to feel like it wasn't really the same as the rest of the country somehow. I don't know quite what it is, but uh, it definitely has this uniqueness. Yeah. What do you you think? Why is that? Why is it so different? (sighs) Well, I suppose part of it is... um, uh, there's an identity thing, uh, you know, like with the football and so on. I mean, I'm not into football myself because I, I missed out on the conditioning of that because yeah. I lived in Canada for five years as a kid. Mm. So I ended up playing ice hockey and American football and baseball and all that while I was over there. And by the time I came back here, I never really got into football. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you get a, a city that's economically downtrodden and everybody's unemployed and doesn't know what to do with themselves, mm. Uh, which was particularly true when I grew up in the, the 1980s and early 90s. Yeah. Um, people need to find uh, something to believe in. They need to find some sense of identity. Uh, and so I guess the people here in this city, I think they sort of created their own identity. Um, mm. And a lot of the really wacky, bizarre behaviors, I believe, are just basically the people of this city um, differentiating themselves from everybody else, uh, it's like it's like they've looked at the the toffs in London. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean everybody in London because I know London's got quite a few uh, different types of cultures down there as well. But yeah. you know the snobbish aspects of London. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you could just imagine that the if 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 Scouse culture was planned, then somebody would have sat down and looked at the toffs and said, "Let's do everything in the opposite <laughs> way to them. Let's talk in the opposite way." They try to sound articulate. Let's reduce our language down to the absolute basics. Let's talk in sentences of less than five words. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's parts of this city you can go to where people actually don't understand the dialogue. It's almost like, you know, the really rough parts of Liverpool. Yeah. The dialogue is so um, unique, not just in the accent, mm. but also the way words are used. Right. The, if you take if you take those really rough kids out of uh, certain parts of Liverpool and you took them around the country, a lot of people would not be able to understand what those kids were saying. Right. Yeah. Which, which suggests to me that there's a certain level of alienation in those people. 
you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've noticed this thing um, when I was younger, and the, 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 the young lads I used to hang around with in Garston in my teens, um, really rough area. Some of these lads were really, really cocky and confident. I mean, they would physically fight just about anybody yeah. um, if they were challenged or given the chance. Yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, they seem like incredibly confident, but as soon as you put them in front of like a judge or a lawyer, yeah. suddenly their confidence crumbled because they couldn't compete on the articulate level. So yeah, it's almost like the uh, the arrogance and the the... the the confidence in being able to physically fight was compensating for the uh, lack of articulation and the and perhaps the lack of status in you know in the, in the yeah country. economic status definitely yeah. Uh, yeah and you know I mean Britain is a very status orientated country still yeah um, I mean it's funny like the the material that I've been putting out over the years I get a brilliant response from uh, the United States yeah uh, from people in Japan India Mexico just a lot of corners of the world where people are really into my stuff. Mm. But the market here in Britain is smaller. Um, and I've never really had a lot of feedback about why that is, but I suspect that me being a Scouser could be part of that. Yeah. Or maybe that's just me having a little bit of Scouse paranoia about the rest of the country. I don't, so. I don't know, because I think that, um, um, unfortunately, we do judge people uh, on their accent. And it's... Like it's almost a subconscious thing. Like you just hear a person speaking, and immediately you make a ton of assumptions yeah. about that person. And uh, I mean, I know this because I've been teaching English for you know fifteen years, and I've thought a lot about accents, and I've tried to explain the culture of accents to my students from around the world, and I've tried to get across to them like the things that I know and the associations that I have with accents. And like they've got no clue. Like a lot of the people who are learning English, they will listen to different accents. And for them, it's just like basically either someone is sounds familiar to them, like they speak with a sort of BBC accent, which is familiar, yeah. and they, they, they consider that to be clear and easy to understand. And if there's someone whose accent they don't understand, they, they just assume that they're Scottish. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. I've, I've heard that many times of like, you know, I, uh, teacher, I was in a pub yesterday and I was speaking to someone. I couldn't understand anything he was saying. I think he was Scottish. Uh, and, and I'm yeah. thinking, no, he could, he could have. I've had, I've had people assume I'm Scottish as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, because you know, obviously, if you're not from the country and you don't know, then you're going to assume that it's like England's got one accent, Scotland's got one accent, or something. And if it's not English and it sounds a bit sort of different, then it's, it's probably Scottish. But um, um, so yeah, like in in sort of uh, trying to understand our relationship with accents in order to explain it to my students, I have sort of worked out, obviously, that um, we, we do judge each other by our accents massively. Yeah, intensely. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know if you're being paranoid. I think... Uh, yeah, you know what? It's actually, you just got me thinking about that and it just brought me to realisation that um, I don't actually get a hell of a lot of following in Liverpool for my work. Really? Um, because, I mean, for a scouser, I'm very articulate. Right. Um, and, you know, the sort of kind of things that I explore in my videos and articles are the type of things that a lot of people in this city would, uh, uh, they would shun it. They would be like, oh, who do you think you are, you know? Right. Who do you think you are talking about that? What are you talking <laughs> about, you know? That kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's probably not the scouser accent, but, uh, yeah, I was just thinking it, it's also probably because... There's such a cynical and reserved culture in this country anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, at all levels of society, people don't want anybody to step out of line. Mm. Uh, the class system here 
is maintained not just by the people high up, but by the people down below as well. Right. You know, yeah. if, you're, if you're in the slums and you try and get out of it, you'll find your friends and your family trying to talk you back down. How dare you try and step up there with them? You know? Right, yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows their place kind of thing still. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's never really explicitly stated that way, but it, it definitely comes across, mm. yeah. Mm, mm, okay so then i guess you're not the typical scouser then i suppose um because uh there you are kind of um making all these uh extremely detailed uh, yeah you wouldn't hear a scouser saying those things in that way yeah i guess that's kind of one of the reasons why um when i came across your stuff i found it to be quite fascinating in 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 some ways that i didn't really understand like uh, i think the first thing i saw of yours was uh your, one of your analysis videos about The Thing, which mm. is one of the one of my favourite films. I remember watching that when I was about, I guess I must have been about 13 years old. Because yeah. uh, a friend of mine, you know, the classic situation, like a friend of mine, his dad had got a copy of it, uh, a pirated copy. And mm-hmm. so I watched it at his house. And he had all these dodgy VHS copies of like, you know. <laughs> the good old days. Uh, the, the Running Man. I remember watching that. And I watched Robocop. And I watched The Thing. These sort uh, of ultra-violent Hollywood uh, 18 certificate <laughs> films. And I was watching them as a 13-year-old. Like, oh, my God. And so The Thing in particular really struck a chord with me. Just, just those special effects. They're just uh, unbelievable. It's, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. It's it, it really is. I mean, it, it, even to this day, you know, I watch some of those scenes from the, the film and it's just, it's, it's just amazing. I think John well, Carpenter... It's, it's not just the special effects. I mean, the, the, the script and the acting, just the scenes with the actors and the paranoia between them, yeah. where there's no monster, those scenes are amazing as well. And I suppose that the sort of paranoia and the tension between the characters is what somehow feeds into the fascination that we have with this monster. Mm. That there's this atmosphere around the whole situation of like what the hell's actually going on here, and uh, and then you get these brief uh, views of the creature, uh, and then it's back to the kind of fairly sterile drama between the characters. Um, yeah. And so I, I watched that. I remember I just came across that video and I watched it and I thought, bloody hell, what's this? Who is this guy? Um, like, first of all, he's done a, a cracking job of talking about the film in such an articulate way. And 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 like, who is he? You know, he just sounds like one of the scousers that I used to meet in. <laughs> he sounds like one of the scousers I used to meet when I worked in HMV Liverpool. In fact, in fact, it turns out you probably were one of the yeah. scousers that I met when I was working in that shop. Um, <laughs> so, how did you end up sort of making all these videos and and doing all this these these documentaries and things like? How, how did you get okay, into that? Well, well, I'll just first of all, I'll just tie that in with the scouts culture thing because it's an important point that because it does actually come into my work quite a lot, mm. and I don't think anyone's ever really asked me about that side of it. How does your coming from Liverpool and growing up with the culture there? How does that feed into the work that you do with these film analysis videos and so on? Nobody yeah. ever asks me that because I don't think anybody sees any connection, yeah. um, but there is. And I would say the reason for that is, that, you know, as I've mentioned earlier, the, the openness that a lot of people have in this city about information, they're willing to ask questions about just about anything. Yeah. And although a lot of people get scared off by anything that gets too articulate and too um, intellectual. Right. But other than that, they, they, they're up for discussing anything. They're up for exploring anything. Mm. Mm. And that's... That's fed into me as well. So, uh, I mean, I was quite lucky as a child in the respect of because I lived in Canada for five years and experienced a different culture. Yeah. 
And because my father was so um, sort of, he encouraged me to explore a hell of a lot of things intellectually as a kid. I mean, you know, he, he showed me the thing when I was about eight years old, nine years old. Seriously, wow. Blown away. Um, and as a child, he used to let me watch just about any movie I wanted. You know, I watched The Shining and Alien when I was seven years old. And he used to sit there and discuss these films with me, not on the kind of film analysis level that you think of now, mm. uh, but he would talk about the adult aspects of the movie. If there was any um, aspects of the plot that I didn't understand, he'd explain it to me. So I got this sort of um, encouragement from my father mm. to explore movies um, from an adult perspective when I was as young as six or seven. Right. Uh, so that really had an effect on me. Uh, and yeah, the, the general attitude of being willing to discuss anything and explore anything and not being reserved and not pretending to be mm. something that you're not and not having to try and fit in, um, but at least not with the, the Southern way of thinking. Yeah. Um, you know, that has had a massive effect on me all through my life. Yes. And I have, as, as you can probably tell, I mean, my Scouse accent is actually quite tame compared to a lot of the um, accents in this city. Yeah. And I guess I've subconsciously done that to myself deliberately uh, throughout my life. I've, I've tried to tone that down the accent a little bit. I didn't want to get rid of it. Yeah. I'm ha happy to keep the accent, but just tone it down so that anybody can understand me from anywhere. Right. Um, so I think I've got that balance okay. Um, so yeah, that, that attitude has fed into all of the work that I do. Um, and also the, uh, the thing about knowing your place, um, I somehow broke out of that very early in life. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea that, oh, this person has a, uh, a PhD or a, a degree and therefore they know better than this person who doesn't. Now, I've never bought into that. Um, probably a whole combination of reasons why that is the case. Uh, the, the idea of the expert uh, is something which a long time ago I came to the conclusion that that only really seems to apply uh, in the pure sciences. Right. As soon as you step outside of that and you start getting into the social sciences, uh, perceptions become so much more uh, open mm. um, and so much harder to verify uh, in a, a conclusive scientific way that a lot of people pass as being experts based not upon ability but on articulation. Right. Um, and actually, I'd say not even articulation in, this, in a good sense. I would say articulation as in the ability to come up with exotic descriptions that sound intelligent, mm. but the concept being talked about are not actually as smart as the words make out. Yeah. That Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I sort of got onto that a long time ago. Um, used to read a hell of a lot of books on a, all kinds of different subjects and uh, you know, gradually came to that awareness. And because of that, I, I started to explore certain topics hmm. um, from a really open point of view. Instead of saying, oh, well, these experts say this, therefore that is the way it is, I would question it. And I would go and read a lot of the same sorts of materials that the experts would read. And from those materials, I would reach different conclusions. Um, it's interesting what you said about how um, certain academics manage to sound like 
they are experts by using certain kind of complex language to describe things that actually aren't that complex. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of a lot of the things that I've read at university and also a lot of things I heard in lectures and things. That, yes. that a lot of my time was spent sort of like sitting either listening or reading uh, the content and sort of there was this cognitive dissonance of like, uh, this sounds so complicated, what am I missing? And yeah. at the same time thinking, but it just, they seem to be stating the obvious, really. Yeah. You know, there's like this weird thing of like, they're stating the obvious, but just saying it in very complex, uh, in very complex ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I sort of started um, figuring that out uh, about the world of uh, intellectuals, not just academics, but the media as well. I mean, you get a lot of journalists who state the obvious yeah. or, or, st- or state stupid things but fluff it up with uh, fancy language and uh, popular uh, terms and so on in order to make it sound both uh, intelligent and uh, acceptable. Yeah. Um, as I started to realise uh, that aspect of society, uh, my, with my own work, I decided to go in the opposite direction as much as I could. Yeah. Um, I decided to start trying and take... Uh, complex issues and try and describe them in the most base, simple way that I could without losing an understanding of the complexity. Right. Uh, and that's one of the things that, yeah, I've tried to do with my videos over the years. And I think it's it's been a source of appeal for a lot of people is I get rid of a lot of the fluff language. Yeah. Um, there's a, I mean, particularly with film critique, you, you get people talking about things like, oh, the mise on theme. Right. Uh, and, you know, they... They come out with these really vague words that sound intelligent but are so unspecific they don't really lead to any concrete understanding. Yeah. Um, so something I've really worked on is to try and make my film analysis stuff uh, concentrate on sensory specifics. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if I do a, a study of a movie... Uh, as I'm sure you've seen in a lot of the videos, I will point out very specific sensory things in the movie, specific sound effects, mm-hmm. props, lighting, and so on. Uh, things that, once you notice them, it's like, yeah, you can't argue with that. That is there. Right, you know? right, uh, yeah. Things that can be ve- uh, sensory verifiable, yeah? Right, okay. So- and I've, tra- I've tried to base as much of my work around that as possible to make it uh, understandable. Uh, and to make it um, real. You mean sort of like commenting on things that everyone can see or hear in a film and, um, you know, keeping it grounded in in what we can actually see or hear? As Uh, much as possible. It's not always easy to do, but, yeah, I I try to do that as much as possible. Okay. Um, In fact, I actually try to do that in my general thinking. Um, That's become an internalised thing, Uh, uh, yeah, the, the kinds of exotic, vague words, I've almost deleted them from my internal vocabulary. I still understand them externally when other people uh, speak them. Well, yeah. when I say understand them, I understand the generalized ideas, but um, I try to think in sensory-specific terms as well. I guess I guess what you're saying is that you, you, you try to talk about these abstract ideas and complicated things, but using plain English essentially yeah, right yeah um yeah, yeah I, I think it's a really really great idea because um you know this is something that that i think more people should be trying to do you know well in a way it actually ties back into science ironically yeah uh, because science tries to narrow things down to the observable right 
Yeah, uh, and you know, you look at the, you know the ideas of the, the the scientific method, which in itself is kind of vague, depending on who you ask. Um, yeah, I mean, the scientists are trying to nail things down to something that can be demonstrated time and time again, uh, with the, you know re- repetition of the same experiment with the same results. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they try and nail it down to sensory specifics, and I guess that's what I'm trying to do as well. It's just um, I don't call it the scientific method, and I don't operate through a university. Right, right, exactly. You're, you're self-taught, and um, you know, you've you've learned all the things that you 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 talk about by sort of uh, reading up on things yourself and and, and exploring yeah. things on your own, um, which is like different to my case because you know I went to the university and I I kind of like studied probably a lot of the same things that ultimately you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, but through the academic um, channel. Um, yeah. So it's I, I just find that interesting that that you kind of self-taught yourself. If that's possible, can you self-teach yourself? Well, well, <laughs> but anyway, you know when, what I mean. When you say self-taught, I would say it's more that I selected my own sources mm-hmm. uh, because you know, on a university course, you're going to be given certain books and certain authors and told read those. Those people know what they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas I would explore, uh, you know, other sources and compare them to each other and, and say to myself, "Well, hold on, that one makes a lot more sense than that one," you know. Uh, I mean, for me, the, the greatest source has been uh, the biographies of famous filmmakers, you know, yeah. the, the, the filmmakers who really knew what they were doing, you know, the Scorsese's and the Spielbergs and the Kubrick's and so on. Yeah. Uh, reading a variety of biographies about those people and their working methods taught me a hell of a lot more than any film theory book yeah. that I've ever come across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've read a lot of those books too, you know, those things like Scorsese on Scorsese and yeah, things like yeah. that. They're, they're fascinating. I mean, in a way, it ties back into the expert thing. The, the people who were running the courses at the universities are not necessarily the people who succeeded in the field. Yeah, right, right, yeah. exactly, yeah. So, okay, so if we try and sort of distill all of this down into just a few sentences, so the, the, the kind of open-minded, unconventional nature of, of coming from Liverpool combined with the interest that your dad gave to you in films and talking about films in a sort of complex way from an early age, and then the sort of... Uh, uh, curiosity and the the selective reading that you've done over the years that all has led you to being in a position to make these these uh, these videos that uh, talk about films in very observant and very detailed ways, but which are sort of um, described in fairly plain terms. Um, yeah. What wh- what was the first film that really struck a chord with you? Hello, everybody. I'm just interrupting the podcast here in order to say that that's the end of part one. This conversation went on for probably about an hour and 15 minutes, so I decided to cut it into two parts just to make it easier for you to listen to. Um, So I said at the beginning of the conversation that I had no idea how the conversation would go. I didn't know, for example, if Rob and I would hit it off. But um, it's going pretty well, and um, I'm I'm actually really enjoying talking to Rob in this conversation. It was really great to hear about Liverpool again, and it's kind of made me think about uh, the time I spent there and the people that I met and stuff like that. It's also interesting to hear about Rob's kind of experiences watching films and um, the sort of, I guess, original way that he's approached um, the films that he's watched and how that has fed into 
the work that he does on his website, collativelearning.com. Uh, in the next part of this episode, we will go much deeper into the films. So uh, in part two, we're going to talk a lot more about the films that he's seen and the films that he's uh, fascinated by. So you can look forward to that in part two. Okay, so that's it, really. Um, leave your comments on the website, as usual. I'd like to know what you think. Uh, but I'll now let you skip straight over to uh, part two of this conversation, which should be available to you uh, straight away. Okay, then. So I'll speak to you again in part two. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.